0: Thank you for listening to another Hastings Naz podcast. We are so pleased that you have shown interest in listening to this podcast, and we pray that it is edifying and beneficial for you. You can watch us live every Sunday morning on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hastings Naz. And if you are so inclined, you can support the ministries of the church by going to HastingsNaz.org slash give. Hope you enjoy this sermon. Grace and peace. Uh, I want to direct your eyes to the screens. We're going to read from Galatians 3 again. We're going to finish up Galatians chapter 3. Uh, This is still in our new creation series. Galatians 3 verses 15 through 29. Follow along with me, will you? Brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings as of many, but it says and to your offspring, that is to one person who is Christ. My point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise, for if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. And it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Now, a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came... We were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. This is the written word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Okay, so did you guys catch how much Paul is talking about Abraham? Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, there's a lot of conversation about Abraham, right? Like, why so much conversation about Abraham, Paul? Why are you talking so much about Abraham? Well, what scholars can deduce is that the reason he spends so much time talking about Abraham is because, as we know, Paul is trying to correct these rival missionaries in Galatia who are teaching this false gospel. And so, evidently, they've made a big deal of Abraham. Evidently, these rival missionaries are making a lot of stink about Abraham and what it means to be a child of Abraham. You want to be a child of Abraham, right? These rival missionaries are saying to the Galatians, saying, hey, you want to be a child of Abraham. You know who Abraham is? The father. The father of this faith. If you want to be a part of this new movement called the Way, well, then you need to go back to the beginning. You've got to go back to Abraham, Abraham was kind of this historical celebrity. He was this guy who was larger than life. He was incredibly well-known. And, and these rival missionaries are saying, hey, you know that guy? Don't you want to be attached to him? He had become, for these other teachers, this kind of celebrity status. And people like celebrities, don't they? People like celebrities. And apparently that's what they were telling the Galatians, that you can be attached to somebody powerful somebody bigger the means by which you do that though is by following the law keeping the torah so if you want to be attached to the celebrity follow the law people like celebrities don't they i have a question if somebody can answer this question for me i'll give you ten dollars how's that what did the kardashians do to get so famous what product did they create? Like what business did they start? I mean, they've got a, I mean, they've got a huge business now, right? Like the family is a massive business, but like this was one of the first, maybe Paris Hilton, like in the early 2000s, it kind of, there kind of became this movement of celebrity for the sake of celebrity, Right. They don't, like, necessarily do anything other than be personalities. And we have these TV personalities. They're people who are celebrity for the sake of being celebrity. Are there any celebrities that you guys like, that you're attached to, that you follow, that you want to be connected with? I found some statistics this week that were staggering to me. Fox News host Tucker Carlson has almost 3 million viewers every night. Almost 3 million Americans watch Tucker Carlson every single night. And that's five hours a week. Man, I wish pastors had five hours a week of discipleship. But arguably more of a reach than Tucker Carlson is Joe Rogan, who has a podcast, who was an actor, first an actor, Joe Rogan's podcast, which is called The Joe Rogan Experience has an arguably larger reach with about, now get this, 11 million listeners per episode. 11 million people listen to Joe Rogan's podcast every single week, every episode. Now these two guys have massive followings, and that's not it. They have huge followings, and why is that? Because people like to be attached to celebrity. People like to be connected to people who are powerful or people who are larger than life or people that have big personalities. And I don't want you to take my word for it. Maybe you know this, but uh, maybe you know that people like to be attached to celebrity or powerful people, but you don't have to take my word for it because my oldest brother, Luke, started a company down in Austin, Texas called OnTIC. And OnTIC is a company that exists to provide personal security for powerful people. He started this business because he recognized that there was a hole in the security industry and thought that he could build a company to fill this gap. And so Antec provides uh, provides a software that that allows people to provide security to high-profile people, CEOs, executives, and entire companies. And the reason they do this is because people want to be attached to powerful people. People want to be associated with celebrity for good and for bad. And so Antic exists in order to protect powerful people because people just want to be attached to celebrity. There's a celebrity culture that we have. But it's not just out there, is it? Has celebrity culture found its way into the church at all? Can you guys name any celebrity pastors? Joel Osteen, yeah, shout them out. Who are celebrity pastors? Who are people that you can name that are big name pastors? Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham, Charles Stanley. I know you can think of more. Andy Stanley, absolutely. David Jer- uh, Jeremiah, who is that? David Jeremiah. Francis Chan. We can keep going and going and going. I, I'm, I, I'm guessing that a hundred years ago it would have been a lot more difficult to name people with like these level of followings. They have millions of followers on Twitter and social media. But there are a few that have stood out to me as of late. One is Mark Driscoll. Have you heard of Mark Driscoll? Mark Driscoll was a pastor in Seattle, Washington, for 20plus years. Um, and, and he pastored a church called Mars Hill, which is not to be confused with the Mars Hill here in Grand Rapids. Uh, there's another Mars Hill church started by a different pastor. But Mark Driscoll kind of became this larger-than-life personality out of Mars Hill, Seattle. Like, multiple campuses for his church. Thousands upon thousands of people following him. I learned this week that one of my cousins in, in the, I don't know, early 2000s was a huge fan of Mark Driscoll and met him. And he was so excited that he got to meet Mark Driscoll. And I heard a story this week about Mark Driscoll where he was doing a a, tour, a preaching tour, and he was in England, and, and he was preaching at a massive venue and, and it was speaking for a couple hours. He, you think I preach a long time. Mark will preach hour and a half, two-hour sermons. Um, but he would preach. He did a packed house, and and after the show... After the sermon, um, he was getting into his his taxi and 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 in the in the venue behind the venue, and there were a couple guys standing out back waiting for Mark. And they, you know, they were just waiting around the back of the venue. And so they, in between getting to the car and the venue, they the, these these guys wanted a picture with Mark Driscoll. They wanted his autograph. And then they got in the taxi cab, and one of the tech guys that was with Mark at the moment said, "Oh my goodness, can you believe that?" These guys wanted your picture? That's insane. They wanted your autograph? That's nuts. You're just a pastor. And Mark Driscoll said to this tech guy, I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. And this tech guy thought he was joking, thought he was quoting Anchorman, the movie Anchorman, because that's a line. And then it became apparent that he was not joking, but that he saw himself as being kind of a big deal. And another one, Bill Hybels. You guys know who Bill Hybels is? The pastor of Willow Creek in Chicagoland. Willow Creek has been the staple for mega church, right? If you want to know how to pastor a big church, well, you look to Bill Hybels, and you look to—I'm actually pointing that direction. You look to Willow Creek. I mean, twenty thousand plus members—it's insane. And uh, have you heard of the Global Leadership Summit? The Global Leadership Summit has, has millions of people that participate every year all around the world. Do you know who puts on the Global Leadership Summit? Willow Creek. That started out of Willow Creek. And they have people like Tim Tebow speaking at the Global Leadership Summit. I mean, massive celebrities. And I mean, we could just go on and on and on about other recognized pastors. I, you see, I fear that we have a celebrity addiction in the church. We want people who are powerful to represent us. We want people who have influence that can enhance our witness. We like to be connected to power, powerful people too, I think. We want somebody who's going to have a name, who's going to make a name for our cause. But the truth is, too many churches have a celebrity culture around their lead pastor. Not just... Willow Creek, not just Mars Hill, not just Saddleback. Even in smaller churches, too, there's this idea that the pastor will have a larger-than-life personality, that the pastor will have this presence about them. And sometimes we hear things like, Well, Jesus was famous, right? I don't know if you remember this song. There was a song when I was a teenager: You are the Lord, the famous one. Great is your name in all the earth. Jesus was a celebrity, right? Was Jesus a celebrity? I mean, how many people followed him, right? He had this massive following. Jesus was like really famous, right? Well, no. I want to push back a little bit on the thought that Jesus was celebrity or that Jesus was famous or pursued it. And there are a few examples we can think of, one of which is that when Jesus was crucified, who was there at the cross with him? Just a few people, right? Most of the women, mostly women. But when Jesus was traveling up to Jerusalem for the Passover, do you remember the story in the Gospels? When Jesus is going up to to Passover, what he does, there's a large crowd going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and Jesus does not go with the crowd. He goes late, and he goes in secret He doesn't tell anybody when he's going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus' own brother said to him, Hey, man, nobody who wants to make a name for themselves goes about in secret. And Jesus says, basically, well, you don't know what I'm doing. His own brother said, well, you're trying to generate a following, right? You don't do it by going to Jerusalem in private, and throughout the Gospels, it's really fascinating. I challenge you to go through the Gospels and look at how many times Jesus says to people, shh, don't say anything about that. We call that the messianic secret. Throughout the Gospel narratives, Jesus will do this incredible work, this miraculous thing, and then he'll tell the person, no, don't tell anyone about this, okay? Okay. Keep this quiet. Even even the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John? When they come down from that moment, from that mountain, from that experience, what does Jesus say to his apostles, to his disciples? Hey, don't tell anyone about this until the resurrection. Be quiet. Be quiet. This was the Messianic secret. And then, you know Jesus had these large crowds. What happened after Jesus fed the 5,000 families? They were on the side of a mountain on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus turned this, the bread and the fish and fed the whole, the whole crowd. And what happened after that feeding? What did the crowd want to do? They wanted to, I love how, what the text says, they wanted to force him, force him to be their king. The crowd wanted to make Jesus be their representative. All right, you're going to be our king. You're going to be the one who represents us. You're going to be powerful. And how does Jesus respond? He runs away. He flees. Jesus actively fought against becoming a celebrity. Jesus actively pursued avoiding fame. That was not his aim, that was not his goal. But in our in our text today, in Galatians 3, it's apparent that these rival missionaries are using the fame of Abraham as a tool to get the Galatians to follow the Torah. Hey, you wanna you wanna be a child of Abraham? Hey, you just follow the Torah. That's all you gotta do. You see, it could be that these rival missionaries were claiming to the Galatians, you can be a child of Abraham, if you will, but follow the Torah. You can be a child of Abraham. Abraham, if you could believe it. Just keep the Torah. It's all you've got to do. And now, this is where Paul steps in. And does Paul say that you're not a child of Abraham? Does Paul say you're not going to be a child of Abraham? That's not what he says. Paul doesn't say being a child of Abraham is, is, is inappropriate. What he's saying is this is a misunderstanding of what it means to be a child of Abraham, to be a descendant of Abraham. He doesn't deny that Christians are children of Abraham. He just puts it in the right perspective. Paul is saying you don't belong to Christ because you first belonged to Abraham. That's not how that equation goes. You don't belong to Christ when you first belong to Abraham. You belong to Abraham when you belong to Christ. You see, being a child of Abraham is derived from being a child of Christ, not the other way around. If you belong to Christ, then you are a child of Abraham. Christ first. It's all about Christ. And the evidence that he gives for this is in verses 26 through 29, the last few verses of, our, of chapter 3. Paul gives his rationale for this, saying, hey, you don't need to be attached to someone famous in order to be a child of God. You don't need to be attached to someone powerful or somebody with a name or someone with status and influence in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If your aim is to be a child of Abraham, you're kind of missing the mark. And here's what he says, because all are children of God. All of you are children of God. Being a child of Abraham is not as important as being a child of God. And then he lays out the evidence. There is neither Jew nor Greek. This week in our staff meeting, we, uh, we I don't know how, maybe, I don't remember how we got on the topic, but somehow we learned that Justin can't tell the difference between blue and green. He can too. He couldn't on Wednesday. (laughs) uh, uh, Before the staff meeting, I don't know how we got talking about color, but Martha said something and Justin was like, oh, that's not that color, that's that color. And then we were like, wait, what? And then he had an undershirt on that was light blue, like a teal. And he was like, yeah, my shirt's green. And we were like, your shirt is not green, Justin. And Justin has a little bit of color blindness, evidently. I think Heather knows that. Yeah. He could tell the difference between the chair and the wall, though, this morning. I was proud of him. Or he could tell that there was a difference, I should say that. Uh, Colorblindness. Now, when, when Paul is saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, I want to be clear that he's not advocating for colorblind theology, which is sometimes what people say when dealing about the differences between races. And Paul here, for Jews or Greeks, Jews or Greeks, are, they're people from different, eth- they have different ethnicities, different racial uh, backgrounds, different languages, different histories, and so Paul is saying that Jews and Greeks are, are participants in this, but he's not advocating for a colorblind mentality. Now, sometimes I've heard people say, I'm, I'm not racist, I don't see color, which I think is a an attempt for a generous perspective i want to recognize that that's a that's a, an attempt to say hey i don't want to make a distinction i don't want to i don't want to uh, be prejudiced but i think there's a there's a problem with this colorblind mentality that like oh i don't see color first is theologically god made humanity this plethora of color if we're not seeing the, the beauty of different races, we're missing out on the beauty of God's good creation. Right? If we don't see color, we're missing out that God has created humanity, diverse and good and beautiful. So to say, I don't see color, misses that. But then there's another practical problem with saying, well, I don't see color. And that the practical problem is that persons of color are largely not afforded that same opportunity to not see color. My friends who are persons of color don't have the opportunity to say, I don't see color. Because the culture around sees their color and makes distinctions based on their color. And they sense that. There are certain privileges, there are, there are certain uh, opportunities not afforded to minorities because of that color. And so, so to say, I don't see color is is not siding with the marginalized. And so Paul is not saying that we ignore the differences that exist between persons of color, the different languages, the different historical experiences, the different ethnicities. Paul's not saying that we ignore that. Paul is saying that God can use every person from every language, tribe, race, ethnicity for his good purposes. Paul is saying, hey, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Guess what? You don't have to be a Jew in order to be a child of God. You can be a Gentile, and for which we say thanks be to God. Amen? Right? There is neither slave nor free. Now, is Paul saying that there are no longer wealthy people or or poor people? There are no longer enslaved people? There are no longer free people? Obviously not. Obviously there are. Obviously, when Paul is writing this, there are people who who have means and there are people who have none. There are people who have all the rights in the world, these free folks, and these people have no rights. He's not saying that there are no slaves anymore. Paul's saying that your status is not going to keep you out of the promises of God. This is a, a, a slap in the face to the health and wealth gospel church. Oh, man, have I not been faithful enough? I've been praying for a raise or a new car. God hasn't given me a new car yet. Paul is saying here that having money does not grant you favor in the kingdom of God. Having status does not grant you favor in God's promises. And he's also saying that having nothing does not keep you out of God's promises. He's saying, actually, the kingdom is for these You like to listen to the people who are powerful? You like to listen to the people who are influential? You like to listen to the people that have status? Well, guess what? God is speaking through the enslaved. Are you listening? There's neither slave nor free. And he says there's no longer male and female. Now, one of the things that I think is worth noting here is that these are all things that the law distinguishes. The law, the Torah would make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, would make a distinction between the haves and the have-nots, and would make a distinction between women and men. There's actually an old rabbinic prayer from around the time of Paul's writing this. A rabbi prayed, and it's recorded, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave. And Lord, I thank you that I was not born a woman. That's this rabbinic prayer. And what are the three things that Paul says here in this text about all being children of God? There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. Now, with male and female, is Paul saying that, that Christians are ungendered? I don't think that's the distinction he's making here. I don't think he's saying that there are not women and men. He's saying that women in the kingdom of God are not relegated to a lower status. According to the promises of God, guess what? Women have every position. Who were the first preachers of the resurrection? I mean, I have loved hearing, uh, I believe it was Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar who said if it weren't for female preachers, we wouldn't know of the resurrection. And you know what the problem with circumcision is? These rival missionaries are demanding that people get circumcised. You know what one of the problems is? Women can't do it. So who is now, afforded the pro- who's now participating in the promises of God? Only the men. To demand circumcision is to say to all the women, basically, I mean, you, you don't really get to participate in the promises of God. You're not a child of Abraham. So women are not only fully welcome, according to Paul's argument here, according to Paul, they are full disciples and ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, all of this was to say that, yes, being a child of Abraham is good and right. That's great. That's important. That's valuable. But if you are thinking that being a child of Abraham is more important than being a child of God, you're missing it. You are a child of Abraham after you're a child of God. You are a son of Christ, a daughter of Christ. First, it's about belonging to Christ. Because Abraham wasn't in God's promises because he kept the law. As Paul wrote, that was over 400 years after Abraham. Abraham had faith. You want to be a child of Abraham? Have faith in Jesus Christ. You want to be a child of God? Well, then be one in Christ Jesus. He says, all of y'all are one in Christ Jesus. Sharon, you can appreciate that Southern, right? (laughs) This is plural. All of y'all are one in Christ Jesus. And church, I know that today is the last time I'm preaching for... I said this morning, a few weeks, and and Sue Jackson said, a few weeks. Uh, I know I'm heading out on sabbatical starting this week. I'm going to step out for a period of time. And this is the message I want to leave with you. This is the passage I want to leave with you. A church is a church not because of the personality of a pastor. A church is a church not because of the preaching of the pastor. Is that important? Yeah, I think it is. I think good preaching is important. And honestly, I spend most of my time in the week practicing my sermon and writing and reciting my sermon. Preaching is absolutely important. But what makes a church a church is, is not that I'm here doing this thing, What makes a church a church is all of y'all are one in Christ Jesus. What makes a church a church is that you belong to Christ. You don't belong to somebody who's got a personality. You don't belong to somebody who's got recognition. You don't belong to somebody who has a following. You don't need to be attached to Abraham through the law in order to be a a follower of Christ. You don't need to be attached to that fame. And, church, so is it with us today. We belong to Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have been clothed in Him. This is the baptized community. You all have been baptized into Christ. You've shared in his death, his sacrificial life, which means y'all are the church. So be the church, be one in Christ, live according to your baptism. As Christ gave himself up for the church through his sacrificial death, our baptism recognizes that sacrificial living. So give of your time and energy for one another. Share of your resources and your energy. Work together. Because this is the church that I know you to be. For as long as I've been here, Hastings-Naz has been a hospitable community. It's one of the identities that I've loved so much. All of y'all are one in Christ Jesus. Be one in Christ Jesus. This is the good news of God for the people of God. Amen.